Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we pick a different ingredient and say anything we can think of to say about that ingredient. Today, we're talking about oysters. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Harrison McHenry, and it's time to Check the Pantry. Biographical sketches of Jack London always offer up a long list of the work he did before he made his fortune with his writing. He was at times a boxer, a cannery worker, a gold miner, a merchant mariner. Always somewhere in this list is the curious occupation of oyster pirate, which it turns out is exactly what it sounds like. Throughout the history of oyster cultivation, there have always been those who surreptitiously dip into oyster beds maintained by someone else. But in late 19th century San Francisco... It was a vibrant black market industry. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, one of the first arrivals from back east was a carload of eastern oyster spat. Native West Coast oysters known today as Olympias were small and not particularly abundant in the Bay Area, but the taste for oysters was widespread. It turned out that eastern oysters grew well in the waters of San Francisco Bay, and within 10 or 15 years, there were abundant beds throughout the bay started and replenished using seed imported from the east coast. By the turn of the 20th century, oysters were the single most important fishery in California, and by 1885, most of the oyster business was concentrated in the hands of the Morgan Oyster Company, and a thriving piracy industry arose, using the cover of night to raid the private oyster beds and sell them cheaper to Oakland markets. 15-year-old Jack London realized he could make in a week raiding oyster beds what it took him a month to make in his backbreaking cannery job, and it would keep him working outside to boot. So he took a loan from his foster mother to purchase the sloop Razzle Dazzle and went to work, later condensing this part of his life into the short novel The Cruise of the Dazzler. He did well for a while, then in the tradition of the opportunistic criminal. When the boat was wrecked, he used his hard-earned knowledge to get himself a job with the California Fish Patrol, hunting the very oyster pirates he had just counted himself among. His story collection, Tales of the California Fish Patrol, contains the brief A Raid on the Oyster Pirates. In it, fictional Jack London and his comrade Nicholas run a scheme to get a reward from the owner of one of the oyster beds by posing as pirates. The beds are located on offshore shoals shallow enough to wade onto from a skiff at low tide. The boys dutifully row over to the shoals, pick a few oysters, and then, while the rest of the pirates are busy at work, quietly gather up the painters of all the skiffs and slip back into deeper water with them in tow. The waiting fish patrol officers head in, and they all watch the pirates go from defiant and hostile to quiet and subdued as the tide rolls in on them and the water goes from calf deep to just under their chin. All 29 of them are hauled in and handcuffed. London signed on to a sealer not long after his time on the fish patrol and headed towards Japan. And by World War I, the San Francisco oyster industry, licit and otherwise, was all but gone, destroyed by the pollution the growing city dumped daily into the bay. San Francisco wasn't the only place where control over oyster beds caused trouble. In 1882, the governor of Virginia personally led a small armada that ran down a fleet of Maryland oyster dredgers who continued to work Virginia waters of the Chesapeake Bay, despite Virginia's recent ban on dredging. Pleased by the results of his first naval sally, he tried again a few months later, but was less successful as three Irish women on the sloop Dancing Molly outsailed his steamer to much public amusement. It's an old story in fisheries. When what was previously a wide-open resource comes under some kind of control, not everyone is on board with the new scheme. Even the Ketchumac Bay oyster farms that are now considered a fixture of the Bay's landscape went through protracted legal battles before they began production between those concerned that they'd interfere with the free use of waters and those arguing for the establishment of a viable new industry. Where there's water, there's food. And where there's food, there's conflict. 
And where there's conflict, there's politics. That's right. We're talking about oysters this morning here on Check the Pantry. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am joined here in the studio by Harrison McHenry, the owner of Fresh Catch Cafe. And I'm very happy to have him in the studio with me because I, you might be the person who sold the most oysters of anybody in Catch Mac Bay ever. I've popped a few oysters here <laughs> and there. He's here to talk to us this morning about how to serve them raw, how to serve them cooked, how to serve them any way you can possibly serve them. If you have any questions about oysters, please give us a call at 235-7721, and we would be happy to talk to you. So, Harrison, what's your favorite of all the ways you could possibly make or serve an oyster? What's your favorite? Well, I'm a purist, actually, so this isn't going to be as exciting of an answer as you may think. I like him fresh out of the water and killed to order right into my mouth as quick as possible. No lemon juice? Nothing. No Tabasco? No, that just masks the salinity of the oysters, especially the Pacific oysters we have around Ketchmack Bay. They're so delicate. It's like silk on your tongue. So I personally would not like to mask that. But now have having sold plenty of oysters i can tell you what other people enjoy what is what is the number one sort of thing that that people want to eat well there's two answers to that question if you want to eat them cold most of the time people prefer a spicy sauce like a bloody mary cocktail sauce or maybe even as simple as tabasco or the classic french meunier right But if you wanted to eat them hot, and I call these oysters for people who really love the idea of eating oysters, but really, you know, because oysters are a little controversial texture-wise. Yes, they are. I would say something with bacon and cheese, like a hot, gooey bacon cheese, like your classic casino or your Rockefeller. Right. How do you make your Rockefeller? I actually want to, because there's a huge controversy about Rockefeller. You know, it was invented at Antoine's in New Orleans. Right. And the original, like pretty much most of the recipes you see these days, they all contain spinach. But the guys at Antoine say that spinach doesn't get anywhere near the actual oysters Rockefeller. So how do you make yours? Well, I make mine with spinach also. It's a... It's a great alternative, I think, but I load it with lots of fennel, lots of perinoa, lots of basil, anise-type flavors. Right. That makes sense, you know, because especially with one of the things that, that, you know, every oyster lover knows that, like, every oyster tastes different. And, you know, I'm from, I'm originally from Louisiana, and the oysters down there are, they are, like, knock you in the face salty, you know. Oh, and chewy also. Yeah, and they have a really different texture, you know, they're not... The way that the way that I was actually introduced to them, because when I was a kid, you know, I, I I liked them fried, but I never wanted them raw. And my mom would eat them raw occasionally, but down there, it's really common to do it on a cracker. Yes, you know, yes, you take we a saltine, quite a bit. you take a saltine cracker, you put your oyster on it, and then usually they would squirt a little lemon juice. And down there, of course, everybody has to use either Tabasco or Louisiana or Crystal hot sauces, you know, but. I don't like the cracker anymore, but you get the cracker. People want the cracker. We get that all the time and we just don't carry it. And so we suggest Alaska sourdough that we make every day. Oh, nice. And that kind of, uh, it fits the bill and it fits Alaska, but we just, we don't carry saltines at the restaurant. And I never understood why until I did go down South and I got to try those different, uh, style of oysters. And then I, I really, uh, understood why they, uh request that yeah it definitely it works with those down there but the ones like you said the ones up here are are delicate are are more delicate and and you know some people say that we have the best oysters in the world that's not something i'm going to wade into but i will say they are delicious absolutely but, you know and and when i eat them the the predominant flavors to me that i always notice are melon watermelon especially and yes. cucumber and and i was wondering if you what what your thoughts on like what what a ketchmack bay oyster tastes like Versus, you know, somewhere else. Well, you're absolutely right. A lot of the oysters we have up here have a, a melon type of flavor, but a really clean oyster from Kachimak Bay tastes like a cup of the ocean. It's a little, it's like a very clean saline taste. 
Yeah, and they're and they're sweet. You know, there's there's this backbone of sweetness that you know, and I have actually tasted the water because I used to work on oyster farms. You know, so I was <laughs> same here. I was confused. You know, and they tell me about oh, it tastes just like the water. It tastes just like the water, and weirdly, yes, it does. You know, especially in the middle of summer when it's. Uh, when 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 the algae is really really blooming and actually while i was doing the background for this show i came across somebody who was talking about um they had a blog or something and they were talking about their first experience with catch mac bay oysters and they said it reminded them of king salmon absolutely you know and it's got that like sort of oceanic but it's not it's not so briny as the eastern oysters and it's not particularly acidic either no it's very very delicate oyster and that's why I um I don't mask the flavor because you will miss it, and you know as you very well the oysters they go down really quick and it's easy to it's easy to power through a dozen oysters and not even think about it at least when you were uh, we were talking before the show and you said last year you were in Europe did you have any uh, like French or European oysters while you were over there yes we ate quite a bit from France uh, Spain Portugal all the way to Italy we had uh, a lot of their shellfish and. Were they the the flat oysters, the European flats? Is that they what they were? The European flats. And what what? Because I've I've had those once or twice, and I found them super super acidic, almost like chewing on a battery. Is that line up with what you? <laughs> um, I wouldn't quite go that far. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, funny enough, because um, there was a lot of flats, but also what I'm starting to see in the European markets is the Pacific oysters really starting to catch on there as well. Really, it is. And so we saw a good mix, but back to the flats, they, uh, the restaurants that I went to are the little oyster bars. They were harvested fresh. There was very little chewiness. Um, there was, as you would expect, they were fresh and clean and just, uh, you know, I love oysters because, because they have like wine does a terroir, which is called meroir. And that is just the certain little climate that it grows in. So as we popped along the coastline, we got to taste every little uh, cove and nook and cranny, and it changed. I mean, you can go to one village to the next, and it's going to be quite a bit different beast. Right. What? Uh, how do they like to serve them over there? Do they? Do they Very like them simple. raw? Well, with lots of wine well, or yeah. cider. <laughs> well, like like Skip always says, Skip Clary always says, you know, wine really should be like a sauce, and and it does. <laughs> Especially with something like oysters, um, it does make sense. But do they do they do the lemon and hot sauce thing like we do here, or is that no hot sauce? Um, a little in Portugal, we saw some piri piri sauce, which is uh, from Africa originally. But how do you make that? It's chilies and vinegar and uh-huh. salt. So really simple preparation. Basically, you're fermenting chilies and you're preserving them with salt. Right. But that's the only time we saw spicy. Now, we did see a lot of vinegar, cracked pepper, and some sort of allium like shallots or, or right. garlic. But in the end, really what it was was a plain oyster yeah. with some bread. Just a huge pile of them, yeah. bread and wine. Bread, wine, and oysters. Well, since the most common way to eat oysters is raw, I thought we'd hear a little bit about, about, about how oysters wind up on our plates. Weatherly Bates and her husband Greg are originally from New England, where they learned their trade, and for the last dozen years or so, have farmed oysters at Glacier Point Oysters in Halibut Cove. Weatherly takes us through an oyster's life from conception to its eventual fate in the stomach of a diner, but I want to warn you, this segment contains graphic descriptions of oyster reproduction. actually can sex them as they're spawning you just take a flashlight and you can look and see when they start to release their eggs the eggs are much larger than the sperm so you um, get your females and you put them in one tank and then you get just like one or two males and put them in with all the females because if you put too much um, sperm it outcompetes the themselves and then you get lower rates of fertilization so you want to get the max fertilization not sure if this is going on the radio this is totally going on the radio (laughs) but anyway so you get your 
fertilized eggs and you put those in tanks they're free swimming for like two weeks before the baby oysters will settle and become like a benthic creature Mm -hmm. so when they're about to settle you go and put them in a tank with like grains of sand or oyster shell they have to be super finely chopped up like the size of the oyster which is like point five millimeters at that point or even smaller so one grain of sand to every oyster larval oyster and you put those together and um the oysters set on the sand and you'll have like individual oysters because in the wild oysters want to grow into it's called colch and that's when they're all like a reef but in oyster culture we're growing colch less oysters and they're all individual where do you get your spat um, we get our spat most farms in Alaska from a shellfish hatchery in Hawaii. It's a perfect location because the water's super clean and it doesn't have much algae. And when you're trying to locate a hatchery, you want it counterintuitively where there's no not much algae the water's really sterile because you're want to grow like one or two types of algae and if there's a lot of native algae then they'll just kill out compete your algae that you're trying to grow so your alaskan oysters are all actually alaska hawaiian oysters they are um Even the hatcheries up here get their eyed larvae from the hatchery in Hawaii. They are spawning the oysters there, and then they send the larvae to Alaska right before they set onto the little grain of sand or colch. Do they send them in coolers? Yeah, they do. Okay, so I want to ask you, this is a visual that I want to get. One regular shaped sized Coleman cooler, you know, that we all that we all know. How many oysters start in that when you ship it from the hatchery until you're until you're you're delivering them in the in the same sized cooler to the yeah, end consumer? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing the difference how much every year of your oysters the volume is when you start out in a hatchery a few microliters can be like 10 million oysters. Like they're super small. When we get our oysters from Hawaii, they're about the size of a grain of sand. So you could probably fit 20 million oysters in one cooler. And then when they, and so then they go from the, they go from into the, into the upweller uh-huh. And then when they come out of that and you get them on the farm, how many spat do you get in a cooler? Oh, by the time they're a year, you probably only get 20,000. So we've gone from 20 million to 20,000 in a cooler. Yeah. And then when you're when you're sending them off to to their final home in the bellies of the, the customers at a restaurant, how many do you put in a cooler? You get to... like 200 dozen in a cooler. <laughs> or in a hatchery, you start out, they're doubling in size every day. And then when they're um, when we get them for the first month, they double in size every two weeks. And then, so they're just constantly taking up much more volume. So from birth to being eaten, how old are your oysters? Ours are typically th- about three years old. Let's start our year in uh, the end of March, early April, before before all the new summer growth starts. Walk us through a year of what tending a Kachemak Bay oyster farm is like. Well, in the spring, you have a lot of um, kelp on your farm. It's like kelp grows in abundance out, at least in Halibut Cove, and it grows probably like one to two feet a day in the spring. So a lot of the gear is really heavy at that time. Every cage we pull up is like a huge hairy kelp mass. Um, But you, uh, at the same time, the kelp does some beneficial things. It, um, it's healthy. We do harvest a little and it keeps the barnacles from setting on the oysters. So we learned that you can keep your kelp on, keep the barnacles off. And, um, after that, when the, after the barnacles have 
set in the water, we usually, that's when the oysters are starting to grow. So we will start taking them out of the gear and washing them. We do a lot of oyster tumbling. That's with this um, piece of mechanized equipment we built that tumbles the oysters in like a circular motion and it helps chip their shell and makes them grow into prettier half shell oysters. Yeah. How many times during the summer, say, would you, would you hit one particular oyster? Like how many times is it going to go through this process? Well, we like to do it like two to three times a summer. So yeah. when do when do you start seeing starfish and when do you start seeing mussels? Yeah, the starfish and the mussels come on in the summer. The starfish probably show up around August, but they're not really a problem until the following year because it takes them a while to get to oyster eating size where they can eat every oyster in your cage and we definitely do see that we've had some oyster cages just every oyster's gone Uh because of the starfish and you get a massive one massive starfish left in your oyster cage so the best way yeah to keep the starfish out is to tumble them in when they're small and they'll go through the smallest mesh of the tumbler and the oysters go through the larger so you just have to keep them out and the mussels they're definitely like a weed to an oyster farm like they eat their filtration rate is a lot higher it's probably like five or more times what an oyster filters so they're eating that much more food and they make produce bissel threads, which clump all of the oysters together and they're not able to feed. So yeah, the more mussels you have on your farm, the more competition you have with your oysters. So in the summer when they set in July and August, we really try to wash them off when they're small to um, keep them from you know sinking our farm. But at the same time, we do like to have a few mussels because they're delicious. And we're definitely going to talk about mussels at some point, probably next summer. We're going to do a whole show about it. But for today, we are talking about oysters. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am here with Harrison McHenry. Now, I had an oyster dish it wasn't last year. I think it was the year before last when we were in Montreal at this restaurant. And it really, it blew me away. It was raw oysters. It was Prince, William, or, uh, Prince Edward Island oysters. Right. And they served it with a beet granita. Nice. And it was unreal. And Granitas so are a good vessel. It really, it shocked me by how good it was. And I actually tried it. Uh, we got some oysters over the summer with uh, here in Ketchmack Bay. And I tried them with a cucumber granita. You know, thinking that whole idea of uh of them tasting uh, having that cucumber flavor and it totally worked so granita is also excellent because when you're serving oysters raw you really want to keep them cold and the granita provides that for when you pop it you put it on the plate you can put a put a granita on it and then it will preserve that coldness of the oyster right and i do like uh the beetroot because it provides a a sugar to the salinity of the oyster so it'll uh, pair very well. Yeah. And they're so easy to make, you know, you basically just freeze simple syrup with whatever your flavoring is and scrape it with a fork now and then to give it kind of a a chunky, you know, sort of almost like a shaved ice texture. Exactly. I tend to go more towards the booze. I really, really enjoy apple cider, um, granitas. And of course the classic champagne granita on, uh, oysters is, uh, is an easy win. And then, you know, serve it with the same champagne and you're just like, right. You're sitting pretty. Yep. So let's, let's shift gears a little bit because, you know, I know we could talk about all the different things that you could put on raw oysters probably for two or three shows, but let's, let's ease on into uh, cooked oysters. And you mentioned bacon and cheese, which I mean, you can't <laughs> go wrong with that. Right. That's what I bait my son Liam into trying oysters with is I swear it's good. <laughs> and I know he'll eat bacon and cheese. Well, and, 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 uh, you know, baked oysters and grilled oysters are a, a, a path for a lot of people who, like, don't want to go near a raw oyster. They'll still eat a cooked one. Right, as well as uh, oysters and soups and stews. Right. Um, so what, other than bacon and cheese, what other uh, baked oysters do you like to, to 
serve up? Well, I think the the winner last year for us was I uh, I smuggled some black truffles from France. Oh. And, you know, going back to that um, that king salmon and the, the same type of taste, we smoked a bunch of king salmon bellies. And so we took the salmon bellies and the black truffles and we made a gratin. Oh. And, right. And oh. that got... Uh, okay, um, show's over. <laughs> <laughs> that, that went over fairly well. So we... Uh, and when stuff goes over fairly well, you have to keep reproducing it because people really enjoy it. Yeah, that sounds pretty incredible. Now, as exotic as I went is... We had an abundance of rhubarb, and I made a jam. And in a pickle, I put rhubarb jam, and then I put a farmhouse cheese on it, and we oh. baked it. And to my surprise, that went over very well. That seems like it would work, actually. You've got the tartness of the rhubarb. You've got the sweetness from the sugar. And the the salty cheese just enhanced the brine of the oyster itself. And that was, uh, again, in a pinch. And, and I love cooking for that because... You know what? It worked. Yeah, let's throw this stuff together. You know, on that note, the one of the one of the best oyster dishes I think I've ever had. I had it years ago when Melissa was cooking at Cups. And wow, she, that was a long time ago. It was, and she did she did a baked oyster dish one night that was a butternut squash puree, and we only ordered it because we were like, "That sounds so weird. That can't possibly work." And <laughs> I gotta say, it was dynamite. It was one of the best oyster dishes I've ever had. I have no doubt. Butternut squash again, you get that that sweetness. Yeah. And she's a fantastic chef. Yeah, and that and that that nutty flavor, you know, the way that it sat right in there with the with the fruitiness of the oyster, it really it really accentuated, you know, the sweetness and, and the, the the fruit flavor. And the mel and actually the melon, you know, because melon and squash are they're they're in the same ballpark of of uh, particularly butternut of uh, of flavor. And then I did another one, which I was a little surprised that it worked as well as it did, which was with uh, dynamite sauce oh. I've had before, <laughs> which is, you know, just a fancy name for uh, for basically sriracha mayonnaise. Right. And I, I worked somewhere where, where we did a baked oyster with that and uh, Tobiko, the flying fish row on top of it. And, you know, that was another another one that worked. I really do enjoy salmon row on oysters, I have to admit. Yeah. But again, I don't bake them. Right. Yeah, this was well. They they went on the the Tobiko went on right at the end as a garnish. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, they we just threw them under the broiler for just a minute, just enough to sort of melt the mayonnaise a little bit. Yeah, have to get that sauce. experience of Tobiko popping in your mouth. Right? Yeah, yeah, and then we we top it with a pretty generous handful of Tobiko. So oyster farming methods, like oysters, differ by location, and I asked Weatherly Bates to talk about the difference in cultivating oysters between Maine and Alaska, and why Alaska's cold water means we have a big advantage over lower 48 oysters during the months that don't contain an R. Well, in Maine and everywhere around the world, pretty much every farm grows them differently. We grow oysters differently than the next farm over, but um, the farm o the farm that we grew them on in Maine was a floating bag system. So the oysters were in like a mesh bag that floated on the surface of the water for, um, and they would stay in there for about two years. Every winter, we took all the oysters from the farm out of the water and put them in a cooler storage for the whole winter. It was about six months, and the eastern oyster can um, like spend extensive time out of the water, and the like mortality rate was more if you kept them in the ocean, on the farm in Maine than it was in this walk-in apple cooler. So we like... They, do they hibernate? Yeah, they hibernate and the temperature's constant in the cooler and on the in the water there, it was pretty shallow. So the temperature fluctuated. So it just goes to show oysters can live a long time out of the water and it's definitely an advantage growing them because they... um. You can get a fresh oyster, but it can stay out of the water for a long time. 
when I think of like oyster farms other than Alaska, like I'd never even heard of suspended culture until I got up here. But like a lot of places um, in Europe and I assume on the East Coast too, definitely in the Gulf, Gulf of Mexico in Louisiana, um, they grow them, you know, in the in the beach or right, on, on the, the beach. bottom. Right. Do they do that in Maine? Yes. There's a lot of on bottom culture um, and everywhere that's pretty much the most widely used culture. But if you get your oysters off the bottom and in gear, you can kind of control their growth more and help like with the shell shape, which is why people put them in gear, like floating bags or getting them off the bottom. So on bottom is kind of the more traditional method. Like it's easier. You just scatter your oysters on the bottom and um, you grow a really nice oyster, but you can grow an even better oyster if you get your oyster off the bottom and growing in a different way. But a lot of people just still use the old way because it's a lot easier. There's less um, labor and investment because you don't need the gear. And then in Maine, are those uh, are those Eastern oysters, are they... Um indigenous to Maine or yes the eastern oysters indigenous all the way from like Atlantic Canada like Prince Edward Island down through the Gulf of Mexico so they're the same oysters as you would get like in in the Gulf like yeah. in Louisiana it's the same same species same oyster it's just a totally different so can you describe like the flavor of a of a of a main grown? Yeah, well, the eastern oyster or American oyster is the oyster that we grow from Maine to Florida. And people, like I just had some over the weekend, and they're a lot more briny than the Pacific oyster, in my opinion. Ours are a lot like sweeter. I don't know. There's just something different about them. Well, yeah, they're definitely, I mean, that's, I'm from Louisiana, so like the classic oyster down there is really salty and like yeah. almost aggressively so, you know, it's like you take a bite of it and it's like smacking you in the face and uh -huh. you're like, whoa. <laughs> so you're saying like even the, the, the northern grown eastern oysters are still just intrinsically saltier and yeah. brinier. Even though the oysters in Maine are very sweet at the same time, they're about as far north as you can grow the eastern oyster. But yeah, they're all really briny. So for propagation up there, are you just relying on like a natural set? No, um, you, it's like here you're relying on a hatchery because the oysters don't spawn in mass. You have to get your seed from a hatchery. So, you're, so there's hatcheries there that supply. You know, even even the beach guys, even if, so, yeah. basically everybody there buys their their spat from yep. a hatchery. Yeah, they do. Um, most aquaculture businesses do up around there, unless you're in really far south or Prince Edward Island's unique because they're really shallow bays. So oysters do spawn there, but there's not really oyst indigenous oyster populations on the eastern seaboard have been in like mass decline because of disease and too much harvesting so uh growers really do rely on hatcheries at this point let's talk a little bit about the r thing is that even relevant anymore yeah the oyster only eating oysters in the months where there's no or month with r yeah yeah that is kind of like an old wives tale at least for I mean, it does apply and it doesn't. It doesn't apply right now to us. In Alaska, oysters are good all year round. Okay, because what I heard is that it's actually not so much. Uh, it's partly, you know, that warmer water oysters can carry more toxins. But what I always heard was that it was because they get spawny. Uh-huh. And so that's the second reason. The first reason you wouldn't eat your oyster in the summer, yeah, you could have more Vibrio, the bacteria, or PSP, or because they get spawny. Some people... So what does that what does that mean? Spawny means that the oysters are getting ready to reproduce, as I said before, they have their eggs and their sperm, um, and that becomes like a huge part of their body, like you know, they 70% like is gonad. And that is like a creamy consistency that some people don't like. 
other people think it's the best part of the oyster. That was one thing all the all the farmers around here would say. We're the only, you know, we're some of the only people in the world that can really sell this time of year because we're the only ones that don't get spawny oysters. Uh-huh. Do Alaska oysters move in on on lower 48 markets more easily in the summer when is there less of an oyster supply from down there? Yeah. Um our biggest markets are during the summer because oyster farms in Washington and warmer water places do close either because their oysters are spawny or because it's so warm that the vibrio risk is. Have you ever, have you, or you you might know, has anybody in Alaska, have they ever encountered spawning oysters? I'm not sure. I've had, I've heard people say, oh, Alaskan, I had spawny Alaskan oysters. I've never had one of ours taste spawny, but I have had some Southeast oysters that looked really spawny. And I do think they occasionally might spawn in Southeast Alaska if the water was warm enough, or at least they're developing a large gonad because the water's so warm. Our water really is pretty cold for any oyster and they don't develop much of this gonad that can make them be spawny tasting. You said it was what, 70 or 72? That's when they'll actually spawn, but But anything above 60, they're going to be developing the gonad. They're getting it. They're getting in the mood above 60. Definitely. (laughs) They're, the thing is with oysters, they're sustainably grown. We're not adding anything. Like, we don't take anything from the water. Like, they eat algae, which is the building block of the food chain. And so whenever we plant a seed, they're growing from basically nothing. And we're producing this just with really low impact to the water. So it's a really good seafood choice. Let's talk a little bit about fried oysters. Fried oh, yeah. oysters. Fried oysters is how I got into oysters when I was a kid because I loved oyster po' boys when I was a kid. It is a gateway. Oh man! And then it took me. It took me a long time before I finally tried the raw one that my mom gave me on a cracker. And once I had that, then it was over. But how do you like to? What what uh, coating do you use on on your uh, oysters when you fry them? Well, at the restaurant I use panko. It's because what I primarily use on most of my fried fish. But at home, when I'm serving them to the family, we got to go back to Louisiana, New Orleans, cornmeal all the way. And, you know, it's funny because for a long time I was, I had uh, the only cornmeal I had the first few times I was really frying them up here was uh, stone ground, man. And that just doesn't work. A little gritty. Yeah, it's all gritty and, and hard and kind of crunchy. And you're just like, God, this, this, uh, this isn't so good. So then I switched and I started using, uh, you know, the, the old school stuff that I grew up with, the real fine ground stuff. And then one day, just out of curiosity, I had some masa harina laying around and I said, I wonder what this would taste like. And I got to tell you, I was converted. I think that masa is like the greatest fish coating that I've ever come across. I could see that connection. Yeah. It's got like, it, it tastes, it tastes so much cornier than, uh, than regular cornmeal for, for lack of a better description, you know, so the, the way that they process it with the lye really brings out in that form, this intense, intense corn sweetness that really goes beautifully with the, uh, with the fish nice, and the oysters too. And I always, I always soak them in a little buttermilk cause I can't help it. Oh, you have to have <laughs> buttermilk and you have to have Creole se- seasoning. Yep. Yep. And I, I actually, I make my own, which is, let's see, let me see if I can remember the, the, it's, one and a half parts cayenne to one and a half parts white pepper to one part black pepper to one part red pepper flakes. Nice. Mine's a little more intricate. It's got about 15 things, but uh, I add a little more herb and uh, a little more spice to mine just because that's the way I like it. Now, I don't know if you're from the South. Have you heard of the Peacemaker? Yeah. It's basically like the most ridiculous kind of oyster po' boy that you can imagine. Yeah. I always love the story behind that. Been out late. Your honey's at home waiting for you. You know you're in trouble. So you drop by the store. Yep. Get a peacemaker. Yeah. To... And it's and it's like it's like an overstuffed po' boy, you know. It's it's an oyster right. po' boy with like the most insane amount of oysters that you can possibly imagine. And it's also one of those things that when you know when you read the recipe, you're like, man, they really invented this in a in a time where you could get a bushel of oysters for like twenty five <laughs> cents. 
But you know, one one little tip is if you can get them, they uh, uh, the the uglies. Oh yeah, I a love lot the cheaper. No, I mean they're hard to a lot cheaper. The same oyster, they just don't look pretty. Yeah, you can't really serve them on a half shell, but you can you can uh, you can shuck them real well, not real easily because they tend to be a little more difficult to they're shuck. A little connected, too. aren't they? Yeah, but that's what I always used for fried and uh, all my all my cooked oyster dishes. You know, when they were outside of the shell. And the other thing that I like about fried oysters, um, which this is a big thing in Louisiana, especially, is putting fried oysters on top of other stuff. And it's not something yeah. you see that much up here. But, but man, some fried oysters in like a spicy kind of tomato sauce on top of, uh, of a piece of sautéed cod is kind of shockingly good. You know, I also see a combination of red meat. I guess it's a the classic take on surf and turf, but a big ribeye, some, oh, yeah. some Creole sauce, and some fried oysters. That'll go a long way. Yeah, and I've done it with uh, with just a real simple uh, reduction of bourbon and cream. And then with, you know, throw some oysters in there just long enough for them to curl up and dump that on top yeah, of the steak. Yeah, just heating them through. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like like really simplified oyster stew. Yeah, and I, gosh, I have to admit, when I'm not feeling good, that oyster stew, sure. It's like oyster stew season right now, too, you know? <laughs> isn't like, isn't in New England, doesn't everybody eat oyster stew on Thanksgiving? They do, or they make oyster stuffing. Yeah, you know, I've never had oyster stuffing. Well, I've had some good and I've had some really, really bad. What's the difference? Well, uh, you know, we were, we were saying, you know, you barely cook the oysters through. I think that's uh, that's kind of the the stone, the keystone there of making a good stuffing is you add the oysters at the end while the stuffing's hot and just mix it through. So do you do you add the juice to the stuffing so you at least absolutely get it, like, you can permeated? add the li- you add the liquor, but when you add the meat itself uh, in the beginning, it will overcook and. It's like anything, you know, like salmon, you overcook it, it just tastes really gamey. Right, yeah, the, and then you get weird little rubbery right. chunks of, like, pencil eraser oysters. Well, the question of what to drink with your plate of oysters. Is or what not to. One. Or what not to. Champagne or sparkling wine is classic, and so is muscadet. But a little further north in France, beer predominates. And Skip Clary brought some Murphy's Irish Stout to Station 12, to taste with Andy Kita. So, the the context I would put this in straight away is this is meant to pair with oysters, and that's where this starts to make really good sense as a as a food pairing. Clearly a very creamy textured, very creamy. dark beer. It's got a very distinct aroma. Yeah, it does. It is. It's got like, it's like saltiness maybe? There is, I think, a slight brininess to this. Brininess there, yeah, sure. Which, when you pair it with oysters, go figure. There is a smoky coffee, chocolate. Coffee. It's kind of like having a, having a mocha by a campfire, basically. But it's not sweet. Nope. It's creamy. Mm-hmm. Nice dry finish. Really dry. Very. And I did that for a reason. Kind of goes away even. I'll tell you what happens with this and oysters is you take your oyster, start chewing on it, and then you take a sip of this and it just kind of washes through and that briny note sticks on the palate, but it's really, really clean. But it's it, this is about texture, oh, more yeah. than flavor. You want something like this is. It's pulling in a couple of different directions. It's it's creamy in terms of like the the foam in this. This is a well, it's kind of thick. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely got some substance to it. Well, like you said it's like it finishes though. Yeah, like there's nothing left. Yep, kind of. But I mean, oysters have got a rich mouthfeel. And so does this beer. But in the end, you don't you don't really want the character of the beer to invade, come come up front and push the oyster out of the way. You re- you've spent good money on oysters, put it to good use. It's pretty subtle in a way, like uh, it really is. Just kind of, um, it's not plain at all. There's no, it's like soft. Even though it's it it doesn't really feel like it's sweet. The malt character and very the much. fact that there's very little in the way of hops going on here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
if any. The, the sweet salt, I mean like, you know, who doesn't like salted caramel, right? Why does that work? It, it's like sweet and sour. It pulls your palate in two opposite directions and really gets your brain going. It works. It's like bittersweet is a great combination, two extremes. So this, the sweetness of the malt with the brininess of the oysters is just a great balancing act. There's a reason that stout and oysters are such a classic combination. I mean, and it just are they? It, it works. They really are. I didn't know that. Certainly in Britain, uh, and and it's not uncommon to get oyster stout. In fact, uh, Grace Ridge oh, actually brewed one. Yes. Yeah. You don't want the oyster. They use the oyster shell mm -hmm. in the process, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When you're talking about oysters, there there's a number of different things that you can pair with them. Um, mm. There are uh, like sparkling wine. You know, champagne and oysters, champagne, yeah. classic combination. Yes, totally, right. It's the acidity that is pitched against the oyster, and that makes a contrast. For sure. Um, this is the opposite of that. This is this is where it's combined. The texture of it is just running in parallel the whole time. Roger. And yeah, yeah. and that's what really makes it work. Now, see, if you served your oysters with uh, like a mignonette, yeah, really high acid, yep. this would not be what you'd want. Oh, you no. would need a really high acid white wine to to match Even with that. Even to parallel. Uh, yeah. If, if, you, if you serve oysters with mignonette, you have to go high acid with whatever you're drinking. Like it, anything else will just fall apart. It's completely and, out. It's yeah. pointless. You might right. as well just eat your oyster and be done. But this works um, with just raw oysters. Straight up. And if people prefer them uh, like broiled or something like that, they don't quite like the texture of raw oysters. Like steamed or whatever. These still work fine for baked oysters. And honestly, I've had some oyster recipes that had bacon as well, part of the part of the thing, why wouldn't you? I'll put a little cheese on there too. This would totally work with that. Sure. Um, put a little yeah. bacon with a little lump of goat cheese on there. Yeah. Mm. That'd, be, that'd be wonderful. Mm. Yeah, man. So I would definitely recommend this is um, this is Murphy's rather than Guinness. Yep. Um, it's still done in what's referred to as a Dublin dry style. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. You can definitely get that dry character. It's not sweet. Mm -mm. This is not, not even. This isn't remotely. an oatmeal stout. It's not an imperial stout. It's a clean, low alcohol, Dublin dry, except it's made in cork. Cork? Yeah. South Coast? Yep. I love cork. It's a great town. I've never been. Oh man, the oysters are really good. <laughs> so yeah, cork is a little dangerous because you can get really good oysters. It's, it's on the coast and you can get three different kinds of stout on draft. So yeah, you're lovely. You're in the doodah. It's great. <laughs> I love this with chili, by the way, just saying. Like? Like chili, chili. But Beans and tomatoes and meat, chili. And lamb. Oh, I love me some lamb. Lamb chili and this goes just fine. Do that right now. This is awesome with lamb. Stout on the it's, way. it's great with lamb. Um, I like it with um, uh, shepherd's pie. I find Murphy's a little bit sweeter um, and less meaty. There's like, definitely a difference for sure. There's there's a meaty character to Guinness that I don't think Murphy's has. Um, it's. It's, got, it's still got that nice savory note to it, that yeah. brine that you referred to right. straight off. Yeah. Um, it's got that, but I don't, I don't pick up cured meat on this the way I do on Guinness. Really? And I find this drier than Guinness. It's a little, um, there's almost a mineral character to it, like um, stones, like river stones. You can, you can taste a kind of mineral character to it that I quite like. You mean at the end? Yeah. Nice work. I had to try Guinness. They did fine okay. here. It's good. It's funny. You look at the, or I look at the menus from the, the 19th century and every menu, whether it's in like the Rocky Mountains or the Midwest, all have oysters on them. Well, what's that one? Uh, uh, God, it's such a legendary dish, but I don't actually think I've ever seen it in the flesh. It's, uh, oh, the, the, the Hangtown Fry. Oh, yeah. You remember that? Yes. And that's the one. What is that? It was a, it was like a miner in San Francisco walks into the saloon. And he says, yeah, I just struck it rich. Give me all your most expensive stuff. And it's eggs and bacon and oysters. Right. You know, and it's like the most awesome thing ever. It, it's, it's amazing, too, that... Uh, that oysters can make it through the Midwest. And I don't know if you know how they ship these, but it was all in big number 10 cans. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, especially out of like a Chesapeake Bay area, um, they would harvest them and can them immediately. And then off they would go. Right. And with the industrialization 
of, um, of food and being able to, um, to get around the, the United States better with, um, with train and refrigeration off they went. Well, that was, you know, that really actually surprised me because I didn't realize just the scale of, of the transcontinental oyster spat industry until I was doing the research for the intro, you know, and, and that was literally like on one of the very first trains that came once they did the trans transcontinental railroad in in 1869, one of the very first trains was a boxcar full of seed. And every year I looked at tables uh, that, that the California Fisheries Service had put out. And like for the last 20 or 30 years of, of the, the 19th century, they were importing something like 100 seat box cars, like an right. actual full of seed every year. You know, at the peak, it was like, I want to say like 157 was like the biggest number. And that's wow. a full box car. And the only reason that they were importing them was to dump them into San Francisco Bay. And then 20 years later, they were gone. Yeah. I'm with you. I hope they stay around. So I have to ask you, Jeff. What's that? What is your absolute favorite way to eat an oyster? I mean, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a simple man, too. You know, I, I worked on oyster farms. It was one of my first jobs when I moved here. I think it was my second year that I was here. I started working on them, and I worked on them for, I don't know, three or four years, I think, mostly over in Peterson Bay, a little bit in Halibut Cove. There's nothing like pulling up a lantern net full of oysters and pulling one out and kind of looking around to make sure the guy who owns the farm isn't watching and <laughs> popping it open with your belt knife and sucking it down real fast. These oysters here, they're so just pristine. But unfortunately, we've come to the end of the hour. I'm going to have to wrap it up here. I would like to thank very much my guest Harrison McHenry for coming by and talking about oysters with me because I love oysters. It was an honor, old friend. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Terry Renzel. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuora Bain. The tasting segment was recorded at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. This is the sixth episode of the first season of Check the Pantry.